welcome to the Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 177th episode, our returning guest is Sarah Kenzier. You first heard Sarah Kenzier on episodes 70, 80, 89, 99, 112, 128, 138, 150, and 163. Sarah Kenzier is best known for her reporting on St. Louis, her coverage of the 2016 election, and her academic research on authoritarian states. She is currently an op-ed columnist for the Globe and Mail, and she was named by Foreign Policy as one of the 100 people you should be following on Twitter to make sense of global events. Her reporting has been featured in many publications, including Politico, Slate, The Atlantic, Fast Company, The Chicago Tribune, Teen Vogue, and The New York Times. Her book, The View from Flyover Country, Dispatches from the Forgotten America, was published April 17, 2018, and is now a New York Times bestseller. And her new book, Hiding in Plain Sight, The Invention of Donald Trump and the Erosion of America, was published April 7, 2020, and is now a New York Times bestseller as well. You can listen to her podcast, which she co-hosts with Andrea Trulupa, Gaslit Nation. And now on to the show. Yeah, when when you said, is this video, I'm like, yeah, I certainly hope not. <laughs> God, I've still been doing them. I've been doing television. And wow, I'm just that's like, right, oh. yeah. <laughs> like, whatever. It's like that scene in Batman in the 1989 version where, like, the Joker poisons the cosmetics and hairspray and everybody looks horrible. That's what, like, television has <laughs> been reduced to. <laughs> Well, I feel like now you're judged more on your bookshelf behind you. That's there's a whole like shelf rating system. I did like I saw your but, stack of, of books. Oh <laughs> yeah, I had fun with that. But I remember at one point somebody it was like a day where we were using this room simultaneously. My husband was using it as an office. I was storing my kids like extra stuff in it while I cleaned out my kids' room, and I was doing like you know a television spot. And I'm just like you know, and so and it's a pandemic, and I'm like, and you're gonna judge the wall behind me. Like that's what's on your mind. Like, my God, to have your life. Like, uh-huh. I mean, in some ways, at least, I don't know. I feel like there's sort of a little more acceptance of, like, parents that work from home and uh, things yeah. don't always run smoothly, et cetera, sure. et cetera. But uh, <laughs> what a way to get it. <laughs> Absolutely. It's not uh, what I see someone say. It's not working from home it's living at work sometimes <laughs> oh absolutely yeah and, and nothing changed for me in this respect it's just everyone is home with me <laughs> like, right, that's exactly. the difference, so. <laughs> definitely but uh are you guys feeling well everyone uh, yeah okay? everyone i mean physically is healthy. yeah we started school this week they're in like zoom school or whatever i don't even know <laughs> like, and yeah. so that's been an adventure um you know still working out some of those uh, kinks there but right well we just started homeschooling our oldest son uh he's starting kindergarten so he's very excited so oh boy well yeah because that's the thing is like for the little kids it's very difficult like my oldest is fine she's 13 she's mm. handling it very well my nine-year-old like this is not working <laughs> we have to mm-hmm. figure out some way to get him to actually not just walk away from the quote classroom so we'll see <laughs> yeah definitely well uh tonight i apologize in advance if i'm taking away from your watching of the rnc i, oh, I know God, i'm not watching that no way <laughs> hell no i've i've sacrificed enough i've toiled <laughs> away and you know every night we have like what i call civics class where we watch the x-files as a family and i teach my children important things about trusting the government so you know i guess they could, they could learn those things from the rnc too but uh, i'm not giving up x-files night for anything so <laughs> 
Well, fair enough. Yeah. Um, I haven't really been watching either. I've just seen snippets and it's just as horrifying and, and propagandistic third world North Korean 1984 as you can imagine it being. So uh, it's it's a lot to take even in even in small doses. From what yep. I can tell, but. Yeah. And it's what I I don't know what I dreaded, what I expected. And I don't need to I, I see the clips that I need to see to do my job and I don't need mm-hmm. to see more is basically how I'm feeling. None, none of it surprises me, so it's not like there's some new insight to be gleaned here. But mm-hmm. well, it's like how the RNC didn't have a um, didn't have a platform this year. All they said was whatever he whatever the dear leader says is, is fine with us. And it's like, well, at least you're at least you're owning it finally. I mean, that's the first very step. incredibly blatant, and the media yeah. has not changed in any capacity. And that to me is the more frightening thing: is the responses, the response from the media, the response from the Democrats, the total, um, you know, supplication of the GOP, you know, which is ongoing, but still, uh, you know, they're still covering it like a regular convention, but of course it's not. It's the proclamation of, you know, dictatorship in a more formal way. It's dynastic kleptocracy. It's all the things I dreaded and said would happen. And people said I was nuts and here we are. So, yay. Well, and it's like, oh, well, Joe Biden has a 15 point lead. Nobody needs to worry. It's like, I don't know. Stop. They they want to make it a horse race. The, the, the horse race people want it to be a horse race. Uh, they want it to be like every other election we've always had where we can, ooh, who's ahead today? Who's getting close? Who can close the gap? And it's like uh, they're not treating it with the seriousness with which, we, not, frankly, they should have done last time, but are definitely not this time and it's sad because we had a whole time to learn from it so yes they had four years and they wasted them and i kept thinking today of um how much time they wasted and i kept thinking in particular of how they wasted 2019 and all of these uh avenues toward accountability in terms of timing impeachment um you know i kept Mm -hmm. thinking what if they had done it in the spring what if we had had a prolonged series of hearings what if they had gone for Mm -hmm. uh his financial documents i mean they really should have gotten them before for uh, 2016, but you know, what if they had been um, vigilant and, you know, uh, and I don't know, and continuously pressed um, for accountability uh, and for um, preparation for the election to come. They had four years uh, to handle election integrity and make sure that the same mistakes weren't made in 2020 that were in 2016, which was, you know, vulnerability to domestic voter suppression, foreign interference, unsecure machines, and of course, Trump not conceding. They had such a long time and it was just endless denial and um, kind of feigned ignorance. And I mean, I I don't know, at at some point, complacency becomes complicity. And I think we passed that point uh, midway through last year. Well, and it's just like every little scrap they get thrown, they just grab onto it of like normalcy. They, They want so badly to be right on the narrative that so many people were pushing about, oh, he'll grow into the office, the office changes you. Uh, surely once he realized that the magnitude and any time that it's like he reads from a teleprompter for more than five minutes or like 
I guess Melania's speech uh, did something for some people, uh, even though she was wearing the like fascistic <laughs> carb, whatever. Um, but it's like any they they just they're like, oh, now it's finally like, oh, presidential. It's like, and then tomorrow they're gonna like retweet, <laughs> you know, some white supremacist or something, and it's gonna be like, oh, never mind. <laughs> yes, and it, it's really horrifying. And at this point, there have been so many psychological psychological examinations into Trump, whether uh, the work of like Bandy Lee or other mental health professionals or Mary Trump or people from the quote inside like John Bolton writing all of these tell-alls. You know, there's been this endless array of documentation into his internal life, his sadism, his cruelty, his racism, uh, his upbringing, so on and so forth. And a lot of that was already there anyway because he's been a public figure for 40 years. The real story to me here are these good Germans, are these enablers in mm. the press, in the Republican Party, in the Democratic Party. Like, why do you want to cling to normalcy when you know that what is directly in front of you is a white supremacist mafioso, is a kleptocrat, is somebody who just let 170,000 Americans die of COVID-19 and who feels nothing, who feels nothing but maybe some glee at the opportunity to shake down states, to shake down, uh, you know, American citizens uh, who are suffering and dying. Like, why do you want that to be normal? I mean, that's the question that I would want to ask them, especially when it's so, you know, not easy because you get a lot of shit for it. But uh, to tell the truth here isn't hard because you have the criminals confessing the crimes and you have them do it, doing it blatantly. You have them doing it as a form of pageantry. And so to simply describe what's directly in front of you uh, instead of what you wish was there or these little things you're trying to find in there, these little uh, semblances of kindness or dignity or decency or, you know, however they want to qualify it, they're not there. Like you're making that up. You're the ones trying to whitewash, um, you know, a, a white supremacist criminal movement. And I don't understand why they want to do that in part because of the total lack of empathy um, and responsibility that that it shows, but also they're digging their own graves. You know, this is a consolidating autocracy. They don't look kindly uh, upon journalists, even the ones that, you know, perform sycophancy early on. Everyone is disposable in this kind of situation. And I just don't understand the, the utter ignorance, not only of history, but of present day life um, that they seem to express. Yeah, and you'd think if nothing else, the self-preservation instinct would kick in at a certain point. I, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't, I yeah. don't get it. I sometimes feel like, like, did you ever read Young Goodman Brown, the Nathaniel Hawthorne story about the guy? It's like you know, set in the Puritan era and the you know, witch-burning era, and so you know, Young Goodman Brown uh, is like all kind of excited because he's going into the forest and he's going to go witness like a satanic rite. But mm. when he arrives there, he finds out that everybody in the town is already in the satanic group. Like, you know, his reverend, his school teacher, his wife, like they all are secretly in this satanic cult. And so he's completely shaken. And then the next day he's not sure, like, did I dream it? Was it real? And his faith in life is, is shattered because everybody has betrayed him on a moral level 
level and he's constantly questioning everybody's morality and how low they would actually sink. That is how I have felt for like the last four years of this administration. Anyone who I thought maybe had some vestige of integrity or is going to fight for our country or is going to fight for our fellow citizens, um, you know, in most cases, uh, I've watched them be either complicit now or I've vetted them and I've looked into their past and, and found a pattern of complicity that I wasn't aware existed before. And so that's been a really, um, you know, disillusioning, demoralizing kind of experience. And these are, you know, power brokers. This is the elite class, political class, media class. This isn't like all Americans or the majority of people or anything, but it's enough um, that, you know, when I write a book that people basically tell them, you know, it's like a nonfiction horror novel that keeps them awake night after night. Like that book scratches the surface of everything that I've discovered um, about the people who control our, our institutions. And that knowledge just, it shakes me to the core. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I didn't get a chance to say congratulations on New York times bestseller for the second time. That's awesome. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. And uh, I would, you know, I, I remember last time we talked, it had just come out, and uh, I, I think I asked you something about if you got frustrated having to turn it in, and then you don't get to comment on stuff for a while, and maybe it's out of date. I feel like everything in that book is just becoming more and more prescient. Uh, Epstein, and then uh, Kalimnik, and uh, you see all these names that keep bubbling up, and it's like, oh yeah, remember that? Remember that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a really weird thing. I mean, I felt like I... I wrote about the future in the past tense, and that was a very strange thing to do. You know, I wrote the book in 2019, knowing when it would come out, and it's a history in most respects, but I knew that it, as a history, it was something that a lot of people would not necessarily see the relevance of until events began to move forward. And, you know, I went through this when I was writing the book, like when I had a chapter on Epstein, and it was before, um, you know, he had been arrested and became a big national story, like there'd been a little bit of coverage, but not that much and my editor initially was very confused like why is this person so central and I was like just trust me he is um, and that happened with a lot of other things uh, you know that actually they they all wanted to remove um, Cyrus Vance, Kalimnik, uh, I'm trying to think the phrase it's a transnational crime syndicate there are a lot of things that um, you know Macmillan and its lawyers did not want in this book uh, they made it through because they can be objectively proven and you know what are they going to do I this was the thesis of the book um, I certainly wasn't going to abandon it. And thankfully my editor stood up for me as well. But yeah, it's um, people who've read it, they recognize these names in the news and they know what the underlying story is here. Um, and of course, I don't fully know that story. That's why I've been pushing for investigations and for hearings, because I think there's a lot that I don't know. And there's certainly a lot that the American public doesn't know. But unfortunately, um, my book did not become dated. It became more relevant. Uh, and I'm looking forward to the day where it uh, goes out of style. And hopefully not because we're in a fully fascist society and people are learning how to, like, burn a Kindle. But I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Well, um, <laughs> yeah. It's. Uh, did you read much of the uh, Senate uh, report? I mean, it seemed like... Not old news necessarily, but it kind of just confirmed everything that was already understood. Yes, it was Paul old Man news. Right. I mean, it seemed to be 
cribbed from open source documents. They seem to be using a lot mm -hmm. of the same materials I used and that other authors who've covered these topics have used. They didn't seem to have done uh, much of an investigation in their own right. And of course, they didn't release it in a timely manner. Uh, they didn't pursue it. I mean, it was a it was an intelligence investigation. So, you know, in terms of um, the role of law enforcement, that's a separate thing. But yeah, that was no uh, blockbuster report. Um, you know, on Gaslit mm -hmm. Nation, we were like subtitled, you know, Holy Mother of Duh, because we knew everything <laughs> in there when they were like talking about Manafort and Kalimnik and yeah. um, the press was reporting that as new. I was like, am I hallucinating? Like, I could swear to God, I wrote about this in my book in 2019. Mm -hmm. And like, I look in the index and I'm like, oh, yeah, it's there, you know? And I'm like, this is insane. Like, these are our senators. They should be more up to date um, and, you know, on the ball here than anybody. Like, how in the world are they this behind and how is the media so behind that they're treating this old information as new or surprising? Um, and I sometimes wonder like that it's got to be an act like people cannot be so universally stupid. Um, so I, at this point, I think a lot of people are feigning ignorance, particularly if they hold um, elected office, because if you feign ignorance, then you're not accountable for doing anything. You can just keep pretending that you did didn't know and you're so surprised um, and so on and so forth and you never have to actually answer the demands of your constituents yeah oh imagine if impeachment was still going right now though uh, and like slowly like like that would that would be so I'd love that the, the headlines and the endless testimony and there's no reason for them not to do it and it's insane to me that what are they out until like September, what, middle of September? They're not coming back to Washington? Yeah, either. they don't care. No I sense mean, of urgency whatsoever. People are dying. People are getting kicked out of their houses. Their lights are about to get cut off. You know, and, uh, you know, people, unemployment is running out. You know, and it's like, um, I don't know. <laughs> we'll get to Yeah, it. they had to be dragged, or it was really Pelosi, had to be yeah. dragged back, um, kicking and screaming to have hearings over the U.S. Postal Service, which is, you know, an essential institution at any time, but during a pandemic and an election, obviously, is a, a critical resource. Uh, she didn't care. It, you know, in the same way she had to be dragged, kicking and screaming uh, to impeach. I do think there are members of the House um, that are deeply frustrated with the situation and with her you know they tweet about it and I'm like please do more than tweet and they basically are like she won't let us like she won't let us use our powers the powers of the purse inherent contempt uh impeaching officials like DeJoy or Barr or cutting their funding she won't let them do that because all of her actions have been aimed at protecting Trump. And that's been true from the moment that she took over the House. Um, I, I don't know exactly what happened in the shutdown, but, uh, you know, that was the last time I think she really fought back. And when she announced in March 2019 that she intended to never impeach him, you know, no matter what he did, that was a very dark moment. It coincided with so many other things, with Manafort uh, getting let off the hook by a judge that had been threatened. Um, you know, and he, he said that Manafort, a career mobster, had led a, quote, otherwise blameless life. Um, you know, the Roger Stone uh, jury was being threatened. Barr had shut down the Mueller report. All of these things are happening at the same time when she came out with a smirk and said, you know, we're not impeaching. And it was the demands of citizens on their representatives and then the demands of those representatives on Pelosi that allowed impeachment to move forward. And I'm watching the same thing play out again now with the Postal 
Postal Service. And now that, you know, I'm watching it play out with uh, election integrity, with, um, you know, responses to uh, mass poverty, to a Great Depression economy, to mass evictions. Citizens are are demanding, like, please, you know, do your jobs. Like, for God's sake, you know, we are dying. And we're also on the verge of losing our representative government. So this is your last chance here. And on the whole, um, you know, they're, they're unresponsive and the ones who are responsive are saying that, you know, she and other, uh, you know, committee heads and whatnot, power brokers within the House are holding them back from actually helping American citizens. Mm-hmm. Uh, that kind of leads into something else I wanted to talk about uh, with the DNC. I, I did think it was of note that AOC spoke for, what, 60 seconds, and John Kasich spoke for more than 60 seconds, I would guess. Um, how do you feel about, you know, because it's like, this is always the Democrats' problem, I feel like. They're always, uh, they're all just, always just playing a Republican in a bad suit sometimes, and it's like Republicans around here that I live around know which party they were, they, if they want to vote for a Republican, they're going to do that, so you don't exactly. need to, like be like them don't yeah uh, um I, I thought it was it was both it was misguided and a terrible decision um on so many levels because first of all as you said they're not going to win over these republicans i don't think there's some big group of undecided voters i even think people who may have voted republican in past elections you know they abandoned trump uh long ago they're not sitting there like hemming and hawing over what to do so what and even if there was that would be a very small constituency what's a large constituency are young people uh you know who often don't vote who may feel deeply disillusioned by the total lack of accountability of the House once it took power. There are a lot of people that are saying, you know, why did I go out and vote in 2018? And why should I risk my life, quite literally, uh, to vote in 2020 if all the Democratic Party tells us is go vote and eventually, maybe someday, we'll do something to help you. And in the meantime, we're just going to raise a ton of money off you and keep asking you, um, you know, for money. And, uh, you know, I got a flyer from Pelosi the other day asking me for money for the DCCC and I, you know, tore it up like she uh, tore up Trump's speeches because it was a uh, symbolic gesture on my part because I have no actual ability to get her out of office. I do think she needs to be removed um, if we're able to move forward. But yeah, an incredible wasted opportunity. You know, I thought the convention itself, it wasn't quite as bad overall um, as I thought it was going to be. There were some effective speeches, but the, uh, you know, minimalization of AOC and of other younger progressive voices, uh, people like Julian Castro, you know, who ran for president or Katie Porter, um, you know, mm -hmm. who's been a very effective communicator. And these are the people who are basically giving anyone like under 45 hope uh, in the future and in a future competent elected representation. You know, that is why these legacy politicians, um, you know, seem to be increasingly primaried and voted out of office because we've lived with this for two decades and we've watched our country fall apart under their stewardship and people are ready for a change and I, I don't know who the DNC was aiming for. I mean, maybe it was aimed at boomers. Maybe they thought boomers, for some reason, wanted to hear from Michael Bloomberg. But I don't think that's it. Because, I mean, look mm -hmm. at him. You know, he slathered the country in flyers and ads and still, you know, could not get anybody to vote for him because people genuinely dislike him. And so I think those speeches, those Republicans uh, or billionaires like Bloomberg, it's aimed at the donors. It's aimed at the donor class. And that's what is, you know, 
funding the Democratic Party. And that's what I think some people who are, you know, heads of the Democratic Party think the purpose of the party is. It's not to serve the people. It's not to help them. It's just a money machine. And this is just one aspect of it. That's dangerous in normal times. It's dangerous in a, uh, you know, a flawed democracy. It's just atrocious behavior in an autocracy. And especially when, you know, despite all of the things that are happening, people should go out and vote. And it's going to be difficult to vote and you're going to need to be motivated to vote. And I, I just think they're not doing that. They're working against their own interests and against the interest of democracy um, in the country as a whole. And I, I wish that someone would stop them because at this point they're a, a danger. You know, they're not just inept. Uh, they are enabling a kleptocratic regime. And that's a very serious thing. They're preventing basic goods and services like the Postal Service from being delivered. They're accomplices. Um, and so, yeah, you know, we're down to the wire with, with two months and, you know, I hope change is around the bend, but the refusal to admit that this is happening, uh, I think has been a major obstacle, you know, within the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I feel like if the argument that Trump is terrible was enough to win last, it would have worked last time, you know, uh, <laughs> it was, it was, it was not enough to just have somebody other than him. And uh, I think their lack biggest lacking right now is a reason like a, affirmative thing that they can give people to latch on to why they want to vote not just to why they don't want to vote for the other person and i i just wish they would find their i don't know historical roots that they've seen i don't know seemingly gotten away from uh, yes they, it's so it's so strange and you know i i do think that the 2016 election was rigged i think trump you know was enough to uh, drive out people to vote against him, you know, even people who didn't mm -hmm. like Hillary who were holding their nose to vote for it. I also think this election is going to be rigged, but what people need to show is overwhelming turnout. They need to have some kind of avenue of, of transparency of saying, you know, yes, we did vote um, in massive numbers. No, we are not going to accept autocratic rule. Like that needs to be as um, transparent and objective as possible because after the election this is going to get dragged out for months i think you know, at the least we're going to have violence on the streets we're going to have mm -hmm. long protracted arguments in the courts and so the people need to make their voices heard and the fact that they won't not just that they won't sort of quote give anything to the progressive wing of the party but what they don't want to give uh it, it's so stupid in terms of the future like why aren't you accepting the green new deal why would you not want a policy that protects our environment that prevents an existential disaster for mankind and that also provides jobs to people and there are others you know who vouch for this plan there's like jay inslee you know who, who helped develop um a longer version of it there's elizabeth warren it's not just aoc they like to do this thing where they first of all they present a is so young and so naive and she's not at all you know this is somebody who's done her homework this is someone who's a good researcher a good speaker um, who's invested in these issues and and who has taken care and consideration in what she says but she's also backed up by other experts and you still see you know the party just dismissing that dismissing uh you know universal health care as unattainable things and it's 
like, you know, this isn't like a treat for young people. This is something that we need to survive. Like we're literally looking into a future of decades of incredible hardship uh, just based on climate change alone. And the fact that they they truly don't seem to care, you know, they they often seem in line with, um, you know, what Trump and his apocalyptic goon squad are seeking, which is basically depopulation, like a perverse view of uh, mankind, like a, I think in their eyes, it's social Darwinism. They think, oh, these people deserve to die. You know, they're weak, they're poor. It's an extension of the most cruel, sadistic elements um, of the Republican Party, you know, that we saw progress through the 1980s up until now. It's not something new. Um, but we've seen just how far they'll take it, I think, with coronavirus and that people aren't reacting with proper urgency um, and a desire to help people and prevent these catastrophes is very alarming. Yeah, boy, that it's it's really I mean, the one thing that you can say for this pandemic is it's really like shown how broken our system is, but it's still like they don't want to like address certain things like it's like, here's one twelve hundred dollar check. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> well, they won't go after Mnuchin. That's concerned oh, yeah. me for a long time because I think he's one of the most corrupt and dangerous members of this administration. And obviously that's saying a lot when you look mm. who else is in there. But also the Treasury um, was hijacked by Russia in 2015 during the Obama administration. Uh, BuzzFeed did an expose about that in 2018. And there was initially, um, you know, a, a FinCEN investigation, an internal investigation of the Treasury. All that happened from that is they ended up arresting the whistleblower. But we have a, a really compromised Treasury where the money is basically being it's, it's incredible wealth redistribution uh, to oligarchs, to plutocrats, to billionaires. And that is what Steve Mnuchin spent his life doing in his, his private career. You know, he was somebody who benefited from Bernie Madoff's Ponzi schemes. And now he's doing it at a national level. And the way they do it, corporate raider style, is, you know, you break it and then you strip it down for parts and you enhance your own wealth and everyone else can, like, go, you know, uh, <laughs> trying not to swear, uh, can go to hell, basically, you know, in in their eyes. And Sarah, you, there, can, you can swear. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> there been early on, um, I think it was Representative Jackie Spear, uh, she wanted to investigate him, uh, investigate Mnuchin. I know she wanted to investigate someone, so the story holds up either way. But um, then a partner of a Russian oligarch, um, Len Blavatnik, uh, who worked with um, Oleg Deripaska and, and with other sanctioned Russian oligarchs who no one is supposed to be doing business with, with, made the biggest donation to the DCCC in its history in 2019, and suddenly the investigations stop. The talk of impeachment stops. Like everything grinds to a halt. And there was enough of a fuss raised that they returned that massive record-breaking donation. But I still wonder, like, you know, these are the people who are in bed with Mnuchin. Like, this is part of the crime cult, and you're taking their money. Like, what is wrong with you? Um, and yeah, they they have not tried to enforce accountability for Mnuchin, for Barr, uh, for for Pompeo, for any of these representatives who are regularly uh, breaking the law and you have pretty cut and dry cases and they always give the same excuse of like, oh, well, you know, Mitch McConnell will shoot it down in the Senate. I'm like, so what? You still have to try. You still have to do your job. You have to at least inform the public that this is happening, that it is against the law, because that's what happens is people normalize it. You certainly see the media um, normalizing this extent of criminality in government. And then people think that because, uh, you know, the House 
House is not reacting as if these are crimes, that maybe they're not crimes. Because if they were, you know, surely Pelosi would do something about it, the FBI, um, you know, what have you. It's the story of 2016 just over and over and over again, like to the point, I don't want to say I'm I'm bored by it per se, because I'm, I'm more horrified uh, and afraid than anything, but I am sick of having to explain it to people again and again and again. Um, and I'm, I'm sick of watching no one learn their lesson, even in the face of mass death uh, in America. Well, it, I think it's the way they go about it that allows them to get away with it a lot of the time, because like Pam Bondi, okay, she's a registered foreign agent. I, I think it was Qatar, maybe. I'm not. I don't really remember if the the country. Anyway, she's speaking at the RNC, at the White House, which is also a violation of the Hatch Act in and of itself because they're doing campaigning on government property, so on and so forth. And it's just like one layer of corruption on top of another, on top of another, until it's like. Well, there's just so much in your face. You just throw your hands up and you're like, well, I don't know. It's like this, this, nobody's running in to stop them to do this. I guess it's OK. Like, I don't know. What's the penalty for that anyway? Like, uh, you know, and, it, and it's like, no, this is this is still wrong. Like, you can't do these things no matter if they're doing it right in your face or they're doing it behind closed doors or they're making you aware of it or not. It's still wrong. Yeah, exactly. So. And, you know, they need to be relentless. They need to pursue every crime, every wrongdoing, like obviously start with the ones, um, you know, that have caused the greatest catastrophes, uh, you know, within our government, um, you know, threats to our integrity and threats to our public safety. You know, you start with election integrity, with handling the coronavirus and the fact that they were hijacking equipment and trying to profit um, off of American debt death. Uh, you know, you start with the fact that Trump is a Kremlin asset and with the transnational crime syndicate, um, you know, with which he and others in the administration are deeply intertwined. You follow the money. Um, you know, those are all things that need to be done. They won't do that. Uh, they won't even do, you know, the small things or the things that, um, you know, may be referred to an old policy that nonetheless was put in the Constitution for a reason. Um, you know, things like the Hatch Act or the use of an inherent contempt, uh, you know, they our founding fathers, I don't think anticipate this particular situation, but they did try to put in safeguards. Uh, they do have mechanisms that can be used to at least slow this process. Um, I don't think that, you know, the train of autocracy uh, can really be stopped at this point, but I think you can put bumps in the road. They won't even do that. And I just have no idea what they're doing. Like they're not doing anything for us, um, you know, the the Democrats, like the donor class uh, Democrats, they're not offering us any policies that might help our life. And they're also doing nothing to stop, uh, you know, this incredible, brutal hijacking of our country that's just carried out in plain sight. So I'm like, why are you here? And this isn't even about Biden. I don't even think he's, you know, at, at all one of the worst ones. Uh, it's about a lot of the people surrounding him, though, and just the general uh, atmosphere of timidity, of passivity, of lack of empathy, of acceptance of elite criminality as, as just the way things are, I guess. Um, it's it's very hard to watch. Well, that was Pelosi's cry before she finally gave in to impeachment was that, oh, well, you know, what the real impeachment is in November and we'll get him then. And it's like, I think they almost have resigned themselves to that fact. Like they, they can't, we can't do anything until then. It's like, you there's a lot you can do besides... And I know it doesn't feel like it always, but if you're elected representative, you can do more than the average person and you should do that. Like, even if, yeah, like you said, let McConnell 
you know, shut it down. Try, try anyway. What else are you there for? Like, go, go have another job if you don't want to do this one, you know? Like, yes, exactly. And I mean, that comment was bad when she said it, you know, and it came with a host of other lies about how impeachment works. Like he'll self impeach or I need McConnell's mm. approval, you know, is another thing. Like a lot of people are very confused about the impeachment process because of that. Um, but impeach at the ballot box was a particularly vile thing to say, given that we now know um, that, you know, it appears vote tallies were changed. You know, this story seems to have been buried um, somewhat, but government officials had been slowly admitting it over the last four years. Everyone knew Russia had hacked the machines, but they kept telling us this tale that, yes, Russia hacked your, uh, you know, election machines, which were connected to the internet, but didn't do anything. They didn't, like, change the votes or anything crazy like that. I kept thinking, well, of course they did. Like, why would they go through the effort of going in there? And I thought, well, maybe they did something like they um, altered databases and exploited uh, domestic voter suppression so they could turn away certain voters um, that were trying to vote, like they wouldn't show up as registered or something. It appears to have been worse than that. It appears to have been what Harry Reid warned about uh, in the summer of 2016, where they're going to falsify election results. And um, Jenny Cohn is an election integrity researcher who's been studying this issue you know, for the past four years. And I just interviewed her for Gaslight Nation, and it'll be on next week. She hmm. says Pelosi has been aware of this since 2016. And I think an article somewhere, I think maybe Washington Post, was uh, you know, put up to that effect. She knew that was a rigged election. And she knew that this election was also very likely to be rigged. Um, I mean, I think everyone knew that. They knew it was a very vulnerable thing. They knew it was stupid to try to bet on the ballot box as if that's some kind of solution. And it's never an excuse for not doing your job. But that's there's something so malicious uh, going on here that she would propose that as a solution to the American public, knowing full well exactly uh, how vulnerable we are and how unlikely we are to have a free and fair election. Like... Uh, there are worse things at play, I think, going on um, than folks initially realized. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I actually had uh, David Scheimer on the podcast a couple episodes ago, and he wrote the book uh, Rigged. And right. Yeah, it really goes a lot into that. And you're right. Harry Reid, <laughs> you're, you're looking good. Yeah, he <laughs> in, was in your old age. Voice in the wilderness, and yes, yeah, Jenny referenced um, his book as well, as well as those Obama administration officials, uh, you know, who I guess were interviewed in his book, who said, you know, yeah, they they probably changed the vote tallies, and it's an illegitimate election. Uh, right. Yeah, it's, that's a very big deal, and I kind of get why people never wanted to go down that road because if you have an illegitimately elected president and ostensibly, um, you know, other members of Congress were illegitimately elected as well, then every decision made by them, every policy decision, every court appointment has to be re-examined. And then you think, well, what the hell do you do with this? If this person was put in illegitimately, does this make this appointment moot? I'm sure it's something people would ask about, like Supreme Court appointments, for example. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, um, you know, the time to confront this was 2016. And, you know, after that election, um, you know, along with Andrea Chalupa and others, you know, we were pushing for a vote audit because we were suspicious of, you know, the, the Russian activity in the election. We'd been warned about it by Harry Reid twice. So it's not like it came out of nowhere or something we came up with on our own. Um, and they wouldn't pursue it. And it's, 
I sort of get why 2016 came as a shock to people at the time because it was an unprecedented situation and, and they didn't know how to handle it. It is four years on and they're acting exactly the same. Like I feel like I'm watching a rerun of that terrible summer and fall, uh, only with more violence, a pandemic and a Great Depression economy thrown in. And uh, it, it's, uh, you know, it's it's very difficult to see because we're going to be living with the aftermath of this election uh, no matter how it turns out for the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's the thing too, is that, yeah, he might be under indictment if he loses. Uh, I, I doubt he'll get any serious time or whatever. Uh, I'm sure he won't go to like solitary confinement, even if he's, you know, whatever, he'll probably pardon himself before he leaves office. Who knows? Um, he would do that. I don't would. know if he can, but he would anyway. So Try. Like, I mean, no, he's like, oh, why not? whatever. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, once he's pardoned Mayor McCheese and uh, all the other, the, the Hamburglar, and like, he's gotten all them taken care of. He can Thanksgiving, pardon. he'll do the turkey, and then yeah, he'll do the turkey, himself, right? And exactly. be bad. But, yeah, he absolutely will. But you know, of course, one of the reasons that he needs to stay in office, all of these dirty Republicans need to. You know, it's not just to take money to take power it's to keep that immunity from prosecution and at the moment you know technically the only thing giving him that immunity is that stupid you know that memo um from the 1970s saying that a president can't be prosecuted but um i don't have any faith in in cyrus vance investigation and uh you know southern district of new york but the new york attorney general uh tish james actually seems to maybe uh be really investigating and, and cracking down uh and so not just he can be um you know vulnerable to state charges but kushner ivanka uh others who committed crimes uh you know within new york are vulnerable to that um you know i think trump views a lot of his children as disposable people i don't think he really cares what happens to like donald jr eric tiffany or baron but he does care uh for reasons about Ivanka uh, and I think that maybe that's <laughs> that's where his mind is uh, to do to the extent that his mind can look beyond um, himself in terms of uh, protectiveness yeah I, I seriously doubt he thinks of other people as real like <laughs> they're just kind of cardboard cutouts or whatever <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. No, no object permanence or whatever <laughs> of other people um but what did you think of Kamala Harris as the VP choice, though? I mean, I, I thought it was what they were going to pick. And, you know, my stance on this is from the beginning, although I really wanted Warren, I felt like she would have just been an excellent president with actual plans, concrete plans um, to fix this and an eye on corruption above all. Once she was out, I was like, you know, whoever it is, like, that's who I am going to vote for, like Democratic candidate X and vice president candidate Y. Like that is who I'm voting for. I'm voting against Trump. I'm voting for a system of government. I'm voting for, autoc uh, for sorry, I'm voting for democracy mm -hmm. over autocracy. And this is, uh, you know, the only route to have it. Um, I, I don't know exactly what to make of her. There are some things I like. I like that she voted against, um, you know, Trump's appointees. She has a very consistent record of voting against his policies. But um, you know, I, I also think she's vulnerable to the donor Democratic class. Uh, you know, I, I think Biden is as well. I don't know if she's necessarily the right person to stand up for Trump right now, but 
uh, no one completely is like you need a coalition you need a broad coalition of people working together to build our institutions back up to take out corruption from within i appreciated um you know the line in her speech where she she looked into the camera and said i know a predator when i see one and i appreciated the shout out to transnational organized crime i then went online though and tried to look at what harris had actually done regarding transnational organized crime um you know she said she prosecuted and i found very little you know i found a case in uh 2014 i think she was still the um attorney general of california involving drug cartels in Mexico and, you know, cross, crossing the border. And it's like, okay, you know, that was her job. That's what she was doing. It's good. She has some experience in that, but it's very different than what we're dealing with right now, which is this nexus of white collar crime, Wall Street crime mixed with a transnational mafia syndicate, like traditional organized crime mixed with corrupted institutions within governments. You know, Mueller gave a speech about this in 2011 uh, and then proceeded to do absolutely nothing to stop it. But nonetheless, it did leave a, a blueprint for people to follow. I don't know how much uh, she understands that crisis or whether her skills and expertise carry over to handling that crisis. Uh, and one of the reasons I, I don't have faith in her handling it has absolutely nothing to do with her. It's because no one has been handling this crisis. You know, Mueller didn't do it. Comey didn't do it. The Democrats didn't. The Republicans helped Trump. They helped the criminals. Um, so I hope that if she does go down this road uh, in a serious way, that she has the full support of all the other Democrats and institutional actors who really want to tackle corruption from within. Um, you know, she's very intelligent. I think if she, she tried, I, I think she maybe could get some things done, but you have to be very brave. Um, it's a tough, tough place to be in. You know, this is the most brutal form of organized crime, and it's now infiltrated so many governments around the world that it's hard to, you know, hold your own against it. And she's going to be under attack for a million reasons, you know, for her race, for her gender, for being a Democrat, for the fact that we basically have Civil War II waging outside. Um, you know, so I, she has my sympathy in that respect, but she and Biden, uh, they need to be realistic because if they somehow manage to get in and Trump is actually out, like, first of all, that's a miracle. Like, that means we're on mm -hmm. the right path anyway. Um, but then they need to be, they need to not forgive and forget and move on. They need to actually prosecute these crimes because if yes. you don't do it, you end up with exactly what we have now, which is all the criminals from past crimes, whether Watergate or Iran-Contra or mm -hmm. the illegal wars after 9-11 or the Wall Street uh, financial heist of 2008. They're in the government. They're in Trump's cabinet. And if you don't prosecute them in real time, they just come back and every administration is worse than the one that follows. And we don't have the time for this. We have the ticking clock of climate change above us. So we cannot screw around. They need to be very serious. They need to go in with a plan. They should consult with Elizabeth Warren. They should consult with Bernie Sanders about plutocracy. I mean, this should be a collaborative effort. That would be uh, the best approach, the most powerful approach. Yeah. And, you know, something that worries me is that, you know, what if what if Donald Trump said, like, for to take one example, what if he was like, all right, I'm legalizing cannabis tomorrow 
and like I'm letting all I'm letting all like the nonviolent drug offenders out, you know, if he or, or some other like what you think would think of as like a liberal cause that they just haven't that the Democrats haven't seized on. Or if, what if he said for student loan forget like what if he actually mm-hmm. did something or or some other Republican just went, well, you know, we may not believe this, but who cares? We don't believe anything we say anyway. Let's just do something popular and take this issue away. It, that that could so happen because they're not they're not taking you know taking the bull by the horns here on on a lot of these issues uh, and they they're just leaving it open for someone else to or it not to be addressed at all even worse. <laughs> so. Yeah, that that's a really good point, and you know I could easily see that happening. I could see you know cannabis vaccines being offered. I mean they will make up anything. They will they will give you whatever um, you know. The, yeah, whatever the, you want, the, whatever you whatever you, whatever, you, want, you whatever guys solution. like those, right? <laughs> but one thing that I, I'm worried about, um, and I've been worried about the whole time, you know, I think Jared Kushner is the biggest threat in the government, even more so than Trump. And one of the things that Kushner has been blathering on about um, completely facetiously is criminal justice reform, which he doesn't care about at all. It's all rooted in the fact mm-hmm. that his father is a convicted felon and he doesn't believe that white collar crime exists. And he believes that people like himself are superior and his father is superior and they should never be held accountable for any crimes. And he wraps this up um, with discussion of criminal justice reform that relates to, you know, uh, drug offenders, small time offenders, the um, prison industrial complex and so on. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I could completely see him. Uh, I hope he doesn't listen to the show. Um, you know, letting, letting <laughs> all of these. Uh, I don't don't do it, Jared. <laughs> just kidding. You're, you'll lose. You know, I could see them doing something like letting all these people out and sort of saying like, you know, tapping into the hypocrisy of the Democratic Party and the timidity of the Democratic Party and saying, you know, we're going to bring the big changes and we're going to do this and that. I mean, it's going to be a hard thing because the prison industrial complex yeah. is so incredibly <laughs> racist that it's very right. appealing to them. And, you know, they don't want to let a bunch of, um, you know, black and brown small time offenders out on the streets because, I mean, maybe they do because maybe then they're white supremacist militias will have an easier time. I mean, this is just such a disgusting situation. Like I, I listen to myself and I'm like, Jesus Christ, like the scenarios that I envision, they're plausible. That's the horrible mm-hmm. thing. But they're also um, deeply horrific. But yeah, they, they may well do that. And that's another reason, you know, even if you're going into a rigged election, you have to pay attention to policy and you have to pay attention to principle. And you have to remember that people are watching you and they're thinking, you know, I'm suffering. What are you going to do to alleviate it? Or I've been suffering now for, for 20 years. Like, when are you going to do your job? Like, when is anyone going to look out for someone like me? There are so many Americans asking that. And, you know, that's why in the 2016 election, about half of Americans didn't vote. And then this time around, you have, you know, a risk to life if you vote um, in person, both from coronavirus and very likely from uh, voter intimidation, voter suppression efforts. And then you have a whole bunch of bureaucratic complications involving absentee voting, voting by mail. It's It's a big pain in the ass this year. I mean, you should still do it. But they, uh, I, I do think to some degree, you know, they, they do need to earn our vote or it's like it's in their interest to put forth something that um, will get people excited and not in a personality cult kind of way, which is the way that they do politics. They try to create a personality cult around Biden and Harris because Trump has a personality cult. They need to have policies. I mean, AOC is the biggest fundraiser in the Democratic Party and has the most, you know, 
social media followers than anyone for a reason. And it's not just her charisma. It's the fact that she speaks in plain English about policies that people find very appealing. And, you know, it's, it's as simple as that. Um, but they, they're very reluctant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought her speech after that thing with the uh, representative Ted Yoho was exceptional. That was like, wow, that's like presidential level. Yeah. She's extremely talented, and I feel like she's not recognized enough, you know, for her intelligence. People are so, you know, they're bowled over by her looks or her age or whatever, the, the fact that she's a woman. Um, but, you know, this is a serious contender. Like, this is someone who I, I can see, uh, if we have a country, becoming, um, mm -hmm. you know, a president or at least uh, it being in a, a position of high power in the years to come. And she should be recognized as that. But we have a, you know, a gerontocracy. So I don't know. I, I think that I a lot of people look at her, they look at others in their 30s and 40s as children, even though, you know, we are, this is like an old age in my mind. Like, oh. I'm like halfway through my life and I'm kind of like, come on, like, when are the right. people of my generation going to lead our country? Like, it's time, you know, uh, it's, it's frustrating to watch all these septuagenarians and octogenarians, um, you know, and some of them I like, I'm, I'm not trying to be discriminatory, but I do think that there's, uh, you know, they don't, they won't have the future that, that we will, they just won't, they won't be alive to see the ravages of climate change, they won't be alive to see decades possibly of us uh, fighting off fascism, they just, they won't live to see it. And when you're a parent, especially, and you know that your children are going to be raised in this world, I think on a gut level, like a primal level, you have a different reaction than, you know, the Nancy Pelosi's and, and Joe Biden's of the world. Like you just do. That's just how, you know, how it rolls. And yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, I remember one part in your book that kind of hit a chord with me was, you know, just being a parent and you like watch your kids and it's like, you almost can't let yourself imagine the future. You just have to keep going. Cause you know, they're, you know, it's not for you that you're trying to, you know, I'm, I'm botching your, your words, but you, I'm sure you know the part I mean. Yeah, uh, no, I think, I mean, you're not botching it. You have it. It's like, it's an act of mental violence in a way to yeah. yourself to try to envision the future and envision your children's future because you don't want to think of them as living in pain. You know, you don't want to think of them as suffering and you know, you know, we all know what's around the bend. And I've kind of felt like the purpose of, um, you know, I guess like our generation, people in their thirties and forties, like it's to fight for that younger generation you know that's that's why we're here so that they don't have to experience the things that we have and I feel like they already have such a hard time you know I have a nephew who just started college quote unquote um you know as a mm -hmm. kid conceived during 9-11 and who was like six when the economy collapsed and like 12 you know when he witnessed uh, the ferguson uprising and then 14 when trump is elected and now a pandemic is, is keeping him from you know having a real college experience and my heart just breaks for him because i feel like you know he has seen so much hardship in his life and he's only 18 years old and then i think my god you know what are my children going to see and that's that's, that's very hard because I want to protect them, but I also need to be realistic. And so I feel like one of the most realistic things we could do as parents is to acknowledge, uh, you know, the severity of the crisis and work as hard as we can against it. And it might mean our own lives, um, you know, become difficult. There's certainly 
painful to contend with. Um, and it's not that there's not moments of joy in there. There are, you know, that's what we're fighting for are those moments of joy. Um, but we have an obligation, you know, this is like our, our sacrifice and, you know, that's just the way it goes. Um, and in some respects we were lucky that, you know, we got to see the world we did, uh, you know, before coronavirus, before climate change. Um, you know, we know what things can be lost. Uh, we know what that loss uh, feels like. Um, and so, you know, we, we have an obligation, I think, to try to ensure the younger generation has to feel as little of that same sense of loss as, as they have to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, do you have any uh, books or TV shows or <laughs> movies you want to recommend to people who are in quarantine still? <laughs> well, we're watching X-Files now as a family. Uh -huh. But before that, we watched all of Lost. And I had, do you remember Lost, like, from, like, a decade ago? Like, sure. And, um, I, 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 I loved I it. When I, stopped, like, I think I stopped watching about halfway through. I need to go so back and finish So did I. It. Big mistake. I stopped watching basically when I got pregnant and I started falling asleep every night at 7 and my brain <laughs> could not, like, handle Lost and graduate school at the same time. But we watched the entire six seasons and it's just, it's an amazing show. It's a beautiful show. It is the perfect quarantine show because they are all trapped and confused and they don't know what's going on and everything is horrible and everything keeps changing randomly but they find some kind of comfort in each other so i became like obsessed with lost i started reading all the like lost blog posts of like, 2008 you know i was like on someone's like geocities page or something or the live journal um anyways i'm watching that and now we've moved on to x files and giving my kids the you know classic sci-fi education <laughs> but um you know that's it's family night it's a weird thing i think for tv to stop you know there's no fall tv season mm -hmm. um all these kind of ritual parts of american life are also gone so that adds to the feeling of disorientation but we do have these older shows and you know uh can kind of anchor you in some sense so yeah i'm promoting someone else's show i'm just doing um gaslight nation and i have my book i have hiding in plain sight uh <laughs> which remarkably came out four months ago. I feel like it's been several centuries. I know. Uh, so yeah, go get that, and you'll get an even grimmer version of this conversation in book form. <laughs> so there you go. Absolutely. Well, I always like to leave people on an up note, so I think you've <laughs> accomplished yeah. it. But, All okay. right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, this is the, your 10th time being on the show. I well, think only so. You have an archive, man. You know, I if do. something happens to me, if what happens to journalists <laughs> happens to me, you should sell this shit. <laughs> you can, like, make bank. I'll feel good. I'll be like, I, I went down for a cause, you know. <laughs> I've got, Anyways, well, I think I've got really if they ever doing this, uh, yeah, if they ever start doing those deep fake uh, things, I think I could make you say pretty much anything I want because I've got so many recorded hours of you talking now. You've got the power. I think you might have, because I've done a lot of interviews in the last four years, but most of them aren't like an hour long. And I think you have the largest collection of like hour long interviews. You just watch me get more and more depressed after every year. But yeah, I, sh I should watch out with that deep fake shit. I didn't think about that aspect. I got to go now. No, I know, right? <laughs> All right. Well, uh, hey, thank you so much. Uh, have a good rest of your night, and I'll talk to you soon. Hey, right. good talking to you. Bye. Bye-bye.
Join the Rob Burgess Show mailing list. Go to tinyletter.com forward slash the Rob Burgess Show and type in your email address. Then respond to the automatic message. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review everywhere the podcast is available, including iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, RSS, and now Spotify. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. If you have something to say, record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to therobburgessshow at gmail.com. Include voice memo in the subject line of the email. Also, if you want to call or text the show for any reason, the number is 317-674-3547. Until next time.